On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, the name of Harlan the Wolf uh, was evoked this week, given the news of the Titan and the loss of the five people on board that submersible near the site of the Titanic, of course. Um, you might have missed the news, though, earlier this year um, that Harlan the Wolf, once the most significant uh, company of its kind in industrial Belfast, has got an enormous new contract, which is going to see ships being built by Harlan the Wolf in Belfast uh, for the first time in decades. Um, recent times have, of course, been tough for them. Could the creator of the Titanic now find a place in the modern world? Donald Fallon is here to tell us more about the history of the shipyard. Uh, Donald, the Titanic kind of holds this place in mainstream culture and imagination unlike any ship of its kind. Yeah, doesn't it? In, in Ireland, actually, maybe maybe the Lusitania uh, is up there with it for us because of what, what happened there and the loss of Lane and others. But internationally, look, the Titanic went down more than a century ago and it does hold this very central place in the identity of Belfast City and over imaginations everywhere. And look, one reason for that, of course, James Cameron's movie. Uh, we learned this week something amazing about James Cameron. He's gone on 33 voyages mm. to the remains of the Titanic and he reckons he spent more time with the Titanic than its captain, which is just wow. extraordinary. Like he is obsessive with it, but people are obsessive with it. And you know, in the past on this slot, we sometimes looked at the, the great explorers of the kind of late 19th century and how they could become obsessive about things. Uh, there's a lot of that with the Titanic. Stockton Rush, one of those who died this week, uh, he was a visitor to Belfast only earlier this year. You know, he was photographed standing in the old dry dock uh, in the Titanic water where the ship was built. So for a lot of people... The Titanic is this extraordinary obsession, you know, to go to the place where it was constructed. Mm. And, you know, thinking of, of poor Stockton Rush this week, you know, to die seeking the place uh, at which it rests. It just really, it holds people, the Titanic. Uh, one thing which is often forgotten about the Titanic, because it's, it's not really mentioned much in the film, is that when it was constructed, it wasn't viewed as being this project in isolation, that it was seen as being part of this this bigger theme. Yeah, it was built alongside its sister ship, the Olympic uh, Titanic. The, the famous words about the Titanic came from the Shipbuilder magazine. Uh, they described it as virtually unsinkable. But when you read about the, the the way it was built and the time it was built, I mean, the National Geographic described this so beautifully, the Olympic and the Titanic. Picture them side by side, you know. While both ships were planned at 882 feet long, stretching more than 120 feet beyond the new Cunyard liners, the Titanic gained nine inches during construction, making it the world's largest <laughs> ship at the time. At 175 feet from keel to funnel top, the Titanic stretched as long as four city blocks and as high as a nine-storey building. 15 steel bulkheads divided its interior into compartments advertised as watertight. This was on a scale that had never been done before. But as you said, it did not happen uh, on its own. It was it was the age of Harland and Wolf. I sort of like that it's um, that, that usual rivalry you get between twins, that like they were supposed to be equal and then one of them ended up gaining nine inches <laughs> yeah, of destruction yeah, yeah. and then lording it over the other one afterwards. Um, this being Ireland, there were always political questions around the whole thing and, and Harland the Wolf itself was kind of viewed in a certain way. You can't talk about Harland the Wolf out of the... Uh, the, you know, out of the context of Belfast and Ireland at the time, you know, what's going on there? And and the men who began it, Edward Harland and Gustav Wolf, I mean, they were both very vocal opponents of home rule. You know, the line in Belfast, home rule is Rome rule. Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. You know, what would it mean for the northeast of Ireland to be, you know, ruled by Dublin? Would, would grass grow on the streets of Belfast? Uh, there was this real panic, you know, over what that might, might, might mean. But there are actually other voices later on within the, the, the company who actually favoured home rule. And some people in Harland and Wolf kind of thought, Look, it's an it's inevitability. It's going to happen. We're going to be governed by Dublin eventually, so we might as well try and secure influence and power for Belfast within that. But whatever about the boardroom, and if there was a diversity of opinion and home rule in the boardroom, the workers of Harland and Wolf were overwhelmingly. Protestant and were overwhelmingly unionist. Mm. And that was kind of criticism that was often levelled uh, against uh, the company. And I think as well as a, a, 
as well as all of that, there's kind of a class dimension to it uh, as okay. well in terms of skilled labour and who could who could get in. So if there was a kind of a very insular thing and very within its class, does that mean that the, the employment there and in places like that, that it kind of tended to be a family thing? Yeah, you know, Catholics in Belfast did certain jobs and Protestants did, did certain jobs and trades tend to stay inside uh, of families. So, you know, overwhelmingly it's skilled Protestant working class people that work there. And at its peak, there were actually tens of thousands of people working for this company, which is just, just mm. amazing. The only thing Dublin had remotely near that was Guinness but this was on a scale above and beyond Guinness really uh, and I mean the big question was how representative is this company at the time you know of broader Belfast or even the broader province yeah. but Kevin Johnson who writes really well about this closed off shop thing he says there were different levels of the yard amongst the workers at the top were foremen these are the men who when times were hard decided who amongst the unskilled would work and who wouldn't by reputation they weren't above taking a bribe and were hated for it just below this and almost as secure were the skilled men the riveteers and carpenters and many other trades Entry was by apprenticeship and you could only be accepted by recommendation. And this is the big bit. This meant the trade stayed within families and it was its closed shop. Okay. And then you've got the kind of the unskilled labourers. If we need you, we need you on the day, but you don't necessarily know if you're going to get a day's work. So, you know, if you had a good, regular, guaranteed job in Harland and Wolf, you were probably a skilled working class Belfast unionist yeah. Protestant. Uh, one thing which is quite striking too is that if uh, if people weren't sure about how representative it was of the city, but if its entire workplace, it's a huge workplace and it's all unionist men, it must just the, the proportion of unionists that must have worked there must have been such a huge thing and then when it f- fell into trouble later in life. Um, did Harlan the Wolf survive the whole Titanic thing? Because there were not one but two different big big uh, investigations into how it went down. One in the UK, one in America and everyone's looking for someone to blame. That's what happens. You know, when something goes wrong, the question is whose, whose fault is this? Uh, at the British Inquiry, one, one historian says it was argued that damage similar to that sustained by Titanic would not have caused the Lusitania or the Mauritania to sink. And in the public outcry which followed the, t- the Titanic disaster, there was almost a witch hunt to attach blame to whomever it would stick. Okay. That's still how the world operates today. Something goes wrong. Whose fault was it? And then he writes too that within weeks they actually brought the Olympic back to Harland and Wolf, massive retrofit, a double hull, heightened water type bulkheads and enough lifeboats for every person on board. And I think Harland and Wolf were able to argue that that was one fault that wasn't, you know, at their door. Yeah, lifeboats. The issue of lifeboats yeah. on, 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 on board. Mm. Um, strange as it sounds, um, maybe the company survived because there was a fair bit of chaos going on elsewhere in the world. War is good business, isn't it? I and, mean, you know, without the, the, the two world wars, what would have happened to Harland and Wolf? Like during the Second World War, I was amazed to learn this, they're making warships, merchant ships, that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's what they did. Sure. They're making tanks. It's extraordinary. <laughs> we were sitting here in in neutral era, you know, rationing food, uh, and up the road, you know, two hours from Dublin, they were making the A twenty two Churchill tank. What an amazing, you what know, a name. what a name, the A twenty two Churchill. Yeah. And you know, when the Luftwaffe start bombing uh, Belfast, it's not surprising that Harland and Wolf was a target. You know, it was a key part of the kind of wartime munitions industry up there. But Tom McCluskey, who's a a real authority on the history of the company and actually a former shipyard worker, he makes the point that. Uh, Harland and Wolf during the Second World War did the record for ship production during the conflict. Mm. I mean, think about the Soviets and how they were able to you know, pump out things. Yeah. But Harland and Wolf made more ships than anyone else during that conflict, wow. which is absolutely amazing. So, yeah, I mean, things south of Newry, you know, we weren't doing a whole lot yes. in that time. <laughs> but all of this was going on up the road in Belfast. Isn't that amazing? Is it all dependent, though, on the war? Um, because I imagine then that if you've scaled up and then so much of what you're doing is well, building tanks at this point, then when war is over... I guess the work dries up pretty quickly. It's a disaster. I mean, things get so bad. In 1966, the management of Harland and Wolf have to go to Stormont to the government and plead for help because they can't 
cover the next payday. <laughs> they say yeah. payday is coming up, and we we can't pay for it. We need we need help to do this. So I think it was a big it was a big uh, symbolic thing actually for for the North. You know, post World War Two, that Harlington Wolf still existed. It was more yes. than a company. It represented something, uh, and it went to the wall in many ways. And the word that became synonymous with the company was subsidy. This was a heavily carried, eventually nationalised company. And by the mid nineteen seventies, there were only ten thousand people working there. So it it, it had fallen. Very dramatically from from a, mm. from a heyday. Even still, though, ten thousand people even back in those days still quite remarkable. Um, nowadays, um, b- people will remember, you know, the low Samson and Goliath, the two cranes that yeah. are still there over the city. Is it mostly a memory though, or, or is there any prospect of there of Harlan the Wolf itself being it, this kind of active thing again? You can see Samson and Goliath from all over Belfast, but you'll notice if you're up there, there are only murals of Samson and Goliath in certain parts of the city. You know, it really yes. is. Uh, yeah. It belongs, I suppose, in the folk memory of part of Belfast. But they're kind of like becoming. Uh, Belfast's equivalent of the Poolbeck chimneys in Dublin. You know? yeah, yeah. Poolbeck chimneys are funny because they're just two red and white chimneys. They don't have anything mm. specific, really. But uh, don't you dare take place. them but down. Don't you dare take them down, you know. But the, the two yellow cranes, yeah, they are this great part of the Belfast skyline now. And they're becoming part of the mythology of the city. If you walk around Belfast city centre long enough, you know, you hear the tour guides talk about them as the, the cranes that built the Titanic, which is ludicrous. Yeah. They're much younger than that. But, uh, oh, yeah, really? look, they weren't the, around at the time? They weren't there at the time. <laughs> they're, they're, they're a later addition to Harland and Wolf. But the Titanic Centre, it's a really excellent museum experience. Mm. In fairness to them, they do acknowledge the, kind of, the, the nature of the company you know, that built the ship at that time, the questions around politics, all of that. But Harland and Wolf now, in recent weeks, uh, it was announced 1.6 billion contract from the Royal Navy. Okay. And that could be a lifeline. That could actually save the company. But you were saying 10,000 people in the mid-70s, that was still a lot of people. Yeah. At the moment, the workforce, when this was announced by the Financial Times, 210 Wow. 210. And this is going to bring them up to 900 jobs. So there's probably more people working in, in some suburban supermarkets, you know, <laughs> across yeah, God, the island right. of Ireland than are working in Harland and Wolf. 210 people. But, I mean, they've been rehiring people back into the company, which I think is amazing. Uh, and the Financial Times, they interviewed one guy, Robert Childs. This is an amazing story. He's an electrical engineer has gone back in there after 40 years. His great granddad sailed the Titanic to Southampton to deliver it for the launch of the voyage. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So, I mean, this is literally in the blood, just like Guinness in Dublin, where you know, it was intergenerational work. Harland and Wolf is in the blood of some people in Belfast. And ironically, of course, in the intervening time, the uh, Ulster economic question has flipped quite a little. Yeah, hasn't it just? I mean, back in the day, uh, unionists in Belfast said, we don't want to join ho- uh, Home Rule Ireland. That would be the downfall of this city economically. That would be the downfall of this province. Nowadays, we look up there and say, what industries left? You know, yeah, the linen industry, yeah. the shipbuilding industry. It's all all very different. No longer is the question: Would Home Rule bankrupt Belfast? <laughs> yeah. The question is: Would Belfast bankrupt Dublin? Yeah. Uh, remarkable stuff. Um, ordinarily, this is the time where I plug you as being the author of Three Castles Burning and the host of the podcast of the same name. On that note, special episode this yeah, week. Yeah, really, really special episode this week. Recorded last week at the Docky Book Festival with Roddy Doyle. He was on great form. Maybe don't listen to it with the kids in the car, though. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. Okay, right. What, one for maybe eight hours from now. Uh, Donald Fallon sitting down with Roddy Doyle uh, for Three Castles Burning podcast. Ordinarily, a history of Dublin uh, in 12th Street, which, of course, is the theme of the book, Thesis Book of the Year. The podcast is available anywhere you get your audio online. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.